Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Let's stand together. And I, uh, I want us to go back to verse 18 as we read this text this morning. So that we can keep, you know, everything in context. Let's go back to verse 18 where Paul writes these words. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. We, your people, love you. And we are grateful, Lord God, that you loved us first. We're grateful that you sought us out and saved us. And Lord, you have given us Life with you that is, it's priceless. It's beyond quantifying to think about what we deserve and what we have received. Lord God, the, 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 the chasm between the two is, it can only be spanned by Christ. It can only be spanned by what you have done to save us. Lord, as we look at this text today, my prayer, Father God, is that it would give encouragement, that it would, Father, uphold and undergird your people, that, God, we would hear these words and understand them aright, and, Lord God, that they would give to us a deep encouragement and a deep confidence, Father God, that cannot that cannot be quenched, that can't be, that will not crumble. Lord God, that you would set our hearts firmly in the realization that, Lord God, you will accomplish the salvation that you have begun in us and that we will indeed, Lord God, be raised from the dead, be glorified, that we might behold you in all of your glory face to face because you guarantee it. Because you have done everything to make your act of saving sinners comprehensive and complete. Lord, I pray that we would be in awe today of your faithfulness, of your unchanging devotion to your people. Lord God, of, of just the incredible ministry, the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God who indwells us. Lord, I pray that you would take hold of our hearts today. 
I pray, Lord God, that wherever our minds might be tempted to go, that, Lord, you would draw them back to the truth of what we're going to look at today and that we might be not only amazed, but our faith might be strengthened. What we do, as Jake prayed, we need your word. We need your word because your word tells us who you are. You communicate your character and your will and the glory and your majesty through your word. Lord, you have given it to us so that we might know you in truth. God, I pray you do a work of grace in our midst. I would pray, Lord God, that you would have just mastery over my words and over my heart and over my mind that I would preach and speak and serve you in a way in this pulpit that honors you and brings you glory. I pray, Lord God, that you would make nothing of me and everything of you that, Lord God, you would increase in our vision and I would decrease. I pray, Father, that that you would have your way right now. And I am asking you, Lord God, please, to solidify and strengthen your people. And Lord God, for those who are not in Christ, I pray that you would create in them a deep and an insatiable longing, a recognition of their desperate need for a Savior and an insatiable longing for Christ until they humble themselves, repent of their sins, and trust Christ as Savior and Lord. Do all of this, Lord. It's beyond human ability, but it is not beyond the power of the living God. So I pray that you would do these things. And I ask it all in Christ's name. And according, Father, to your plan and just in his merit. Amen. You know, beloved, I, I have, Pat, you're right. This, I think this is the greatest chapter of scripture. The more that I study Romans 8, the more I am convinced how wonderful and glorious this text really is. And I just, you know, in reading through this, beloved, I, what a rich deposit this is of so many essential doctrines of the Christian faith, and not just the, the doctrines, but the personal application of those doctrines to our lives, right? Like, I read this text, and I'm still amazed to read, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Well, it's because of the perfect plan of God, the Father, and the comprehensive justification that has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ for His people. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit in applying that salvation personally in the life of every single one of us who knows Christ, right? It is because of, you know, the, the, the ongoing sanctification, that killing sin and becoming more conformed to Christ that is the necessary fruit of justification and the evidence that we truly do belong to God and we will be glorified in the future, right? It's the testimony of our adoption as the children of God. The reality that though we experience suffering in this earth for the sake of Christ, we will never be cast off by God. That even though we live in this present evil age, God is our Father. And He will not abandon us. All throughout this chapter, Paul has been developing and applying the these wonderful doctrines he's been teaching throughout Romans. And in particular, beloved, he has been placing heavy emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? In fact, I want you to think about it. I want you to consider with me for just a moment all that Paul has been telling us about, in this chapter, about the gracious work of the blessed Holy Spirit in our lives, right? I want you to think about this. The Holy Spirit, he says, has set us free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, verse 2, right? The Holy Spirit now dwells in us, verse 4. The Holy Spirit leads us to put sin to death, verse 13. The Holy Spirit leads us as the sons and the daughters of God, verse 14. The Holy Spirit, as the spirit of adoption, enables us to call God in a personal and an intimate way, Abba, Father, verse 15. The Holy Spirit confirms it to us that we are the children of God, that we're the heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, Verse 17, and he mediates to us, the Holy Spirit does, the first fruits of salvation to confirm in us our ultimate hope of, 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 of glorification. Verse 23, right? He's active, the Holy Spirit is, always working. 
leading us to walk out and work out our salvation in Christ. He is, he is actively at work to conform us into the image of Christ, to give us assurance that we belong to Christ and to ensure that we persevere in the faith until the end of our lives. In fact, I want you to hear me when I say this. One of the chief, one of the chief guarantees that a true and a real Christian, that someone who truly does belong to Christ, that they cannot fall from grace, that a Christian will persevere to the end, is the personal, active, faithful ministry by the Holy Spirit in which we have been sealed unto eternal salvation. Amen? Paul described this for us in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, when he said this. He said, in him, that is in Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, why am I talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Here's why this text that we're looking at this morning, beloved, It is yet another evidence and promise of how the work of the Holy Spirit assures us of our salvation in Christ. And it is, it is a source of great confidence and of certain hope. Listen, this text, beloved, is primarily about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want to emphasize that point. I want you to hear me when I say this. I want us to enter this text properly this morning. There are a lot of good-hearted, faithful brothers that will take this text and they will rip it out of context and they will use it as a jumping-off point for a treatise concerning the Christian's prayer life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. I don't certainly we should and we must pray, right? We are commanded to pray. The Bible is full of exhortations to prayer. Isn't that true? Right? I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he, he tells us how to pray. He taught us how to pray, saying, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? We're to be praying, Paul says, at all times. Praying without ceasing. We are to be praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. He exhorted the Philippians saying this. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious. About anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your prayer, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? We must pray. We must commune with our Father in heaven. We must continue praying, you know, and making our requests known to God and, and knowing Him and seeking to pray according to His will. Right? Prayer is a sweet gift and privilege from our Lord, right? In fact, the Puritan Thomas Brooks said it like this. He said, ah, how often, Christian, how often has God kissed you at the beginning of prayer and spoken peace to you in the midst of prayer and then filled you with joy and assurance upon the close of prayer? Right? Prayer is a wonderful gift. We must pray and pray more and even pray some more. But I want you to hear me when I say this. This is not the focus of this text. It's not. It's not about our efforts in prayer. We've got to keep this te- this, this, these two verses in context. In the context of Romans 8. Well, what is the context? Well, here's what it is. Most recently, Paul has been talking to us about our suffering for Christ, right? He's been talking about, the, about our groaning for glory. He's been talking about our living in light of the hope to which we have been saved and our present and patient but active perseverance Remember, that was the meaning of the word patience in verse 25. Look at it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's patient and active perseverance, right? Continuing in those things to which we've been called worship and killing sin and hearing the word of God and being teachable and correctable and growing in the likeness of Christ and trusting in the Lord and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ and loving one another and proclaiming the gospel and calling the lost to faith, all of that, persevering and, and, and being steadfast in this present evil, evil age. But listen, that's not easy, is it? That's the whole point. 
The Christian life is not easy. It's not a life of ease. It's, it's a life like our Savior endured. Right? I mean, I, I think sometimes we, we, we really do a disservice to people when we're preaching the gospel and we don't talk to them about the cost of discipleship. Right? You lay down your life for Christ. You take up the cross and follow Him. It is a lifestyle of difficulty and hardship and suffering. Why? Because we're living in an evil earth. We're not in heaven, beloved. It's hard. It involves hardship and suffering and trial. J.C. Ryle said, now is the school time, then the eternal holiday. Now is the tossing on the waves of a troublesome world, then the quiet harbor. Now is the scattering, right? Then is the gathering. Now is the time of sowing. Then is the harvest period. Now is the working season. Then the wages. Now is the cross. Then the crown, right? The Christian life is a marathon. And there are times, beloved, when our weakness is more pronounced than at other times, isn't there? When we're weary and we're cast down. And this text right here that we're reading is about the ever-faithful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives at all times. But especially in those times when the suffering and the trial and the heaviness and the difficulty of living faithfully for Christ threaten to overwhelm us and in fact feel like they will. So this text is not a treatise on how we should pray as much as it is a testimony to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's about Him. It's about what He does. His steadfast faithfulness to those who have been chosen by God and and redeemed by the blood of Christ and adopted into the family of God and who now are indwelt with the Holy Spirit Himself and who have been sealed under the family of God and the future hope of glory. It's about His ministry to us to keep us from falling. To keep us from ultimately being lost. To keep us from falling from grace. This text is not chiefly about what we must do. There are no imperative statements here. This text is about how he ministers in and to us who are in Christ to preserve us and make us endure to the end. And it is a rich and it is a soul-nourishing and it is an assuring word from the Lord. Look at this with me, beloved. Look at it in verse 20, very first part of verse 26. Having described the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the reality of suffering because we belong to Christ, he says even more. Look what he says. He says, listen, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in this life right now. They're suffering for Christ and groaning for glory. And he wants us to know, Paul does, that we are not left to our own power to endure. Praise God. You know, the longer I live, the more I realize I'm not as strong as I think I am. That's a humbling thing when you're a man. I'll be honest. That's just a humbling thing. You know, as a man, that testosterone thing that all of us have, You know, we want to think that we're invincible. We want to think that we are, you know, just 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And so when, you know, the first sign comes that we're not, say our head is letting loose of our hair. Or, yeah, or when... Or when all of a sudden that, that, that weight that we used to be able to push with no problem all of a sudden ends up in an injured elbow or a torn peck or an injured shoulder and we realize I'm not 26 anymore. Some of y'all are 26. I'm just saying some of us are not. <clears throat> it's a humbling thing. Why? Because we live in America. We live in, by God, America. Right? And, and we're all supposed to be John Wayne or Clint Eastwood or whoever like today's version of that is, but whoever it is, he's woefully inadequate compared to the first two. <laughs> but we're supposed to be, you know, indestructible, right? And then the reality comes that we're not. That we're not. And not just physically, spiritually, right? Emotionally. 
We're not, praise God, left to our own power to endure. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And that word likewise, listen, it looks back to everything that he's already described about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's saying, hey, you know what? Add this to the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us in our weakness. With a pastor's heart, I want you to see this. With a pastor's heart, Paul includes himself with the Roman Christians. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't put himself up as the paragon of perfection and say, he helps you, the Spirit helps you in your weakness, does he? As if he's arrived. He doesn't do that. But he lets the Roman Christians and us, he he lets us know that, hey, I'm right there with you. I need this same help from the Spirit of God. I'm sharing in your weakness. Praise God, Paul is no ivory tower theologian. So what's Paul mean when he talks about weakness? It just describes, beloved, powerlessness. It it describes infirmity. It describes inability. It just speaks to our weakness and our inability to endure and to persevere in the faith to the end in our own strength and power. We just can't do it. That, that, that strength does not, does not dwell within us ourselves naturally. It's not, we just don't have it. Though we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, listen, we still are living in this decaying body of flesh, right? And we are still battling a sinful nature every single day. And we are living in an evil world that is under the sway of Satan. And we're enduring sufferings because we're united to Christ like we talked about last week, right? And it's it's such a, a huge thing, right? I mean, not only do we suffer persecution, right? But we suffer the things that are common to all men and, and women in this fallen world world but we do it we try to respond in faith in the midst of those things as well as the fact that that you know we are dealing with trials and hardships and father need discipline that are uniquely fashioned to each one of us that if we didn't belong to christ we wouldn't have to endure but we're enduring it because because god our father is making us fit for heaven right and there is absolutely no amount of human willpower no amount of concentrated determination, no matter, no amount of rugged self-reliance or a stiff upper lip that can see us through to the end. The suffering and the trials, the hardship, the pain, the tribulations of this life in Christ, beloved, they are meant to show us just how weak we really are. Man, you know this, right? You know this. We've been there. There are times when we're spiritually and emotionally and physically just washed out. We're seemingly overwhelmed by some situation or some spiritual issue that we've got to deal with or the pressures of living in this fallen world. Sometimes there are times when when there's a certain temptation that weighs very heavy. Or we know there's some action that we know we've got to take, but we also know it's going to be exceedingly painful to, to endure. There's times when we battle more fiercely than others with discontentment in the face of God's providence, of trying to understand God's purpose and His will, of trying ever so hard to cling to God's promises and to our eternal hope and striving really hard to remain faithful to the Lord, but feeling like our faith might fail. Isn't it true? Can, uh, just do Can we take off the, the Christian mask for just a sec and be honest? Nobody's looking at you right now to, 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 to see in you a, a, a perfect projection of somebody who has it all together all the time without any suffering, trouble, or hardship. Listen to me, beloved. It is guaranteed that you will suffer as Christ did in this earth if you belong to Him, right? And so let's not pretend that we're impervious to the things that I've just mentioned. Because we're not. And when we act like we are is when we shut ourselves off from the help we need. We're not as strong as we like to imagine, even when everything seems to be going our way. Beloved, we've got to know, though, that in those times, in those times, we are not alone in the fight for faith and for faithfulness to Christ. We're not alone in our fight for joy and trust in the Lord. We are not alone in a fight for faithful worship, in the battle to endure and to persevere. We are not alone. We're not left as orphans. We, we, we do not strive in our own strength. We're not alone. We need to know that. 
you know, in the military, if a, a pilot goes down at sea at nighttime, okay, all the time, especially, but especially at nighttime, if a pilot goes down at sea, whether he's a helicopter pilot, a jet pilot, whatever he is, the very first thing that happens is you put a plane on station to circle that guy while he's down in the water. Now, can you do something from that? Let's say you're up there in a P3 and you're flying around like, you know, flying around, you know, the area where that guy has gone down. Certainly, you're not going to drop some cable out of the sky and pick him up out of the water and fly him to safety. This isn't a movie. It's not Batman. But you know why you do that? You do that so that guy in the water knows I'm not alone out here. Somebody's coming to get me. I haven't, I haven't been forgotten. Somebody's keeping their eye on me. And I want you to hear me when I say this. God does far more than that. Because you know what that is? That's a sympathetic gesture until somebody can actually get there to get him out of the water, right? God's not into sympathetic gestures. He has given us the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word helps here is a great word. It is a combination. It's the only place it shows up in Greek, in, in, in the Greek New Testament. It's a combination of three words in Greek. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it for you when I'm this wound up. But it means, it means to take an interest in someone. It means to come to their aid and join with them in their struggle and supply the sufficient power to bear the load. Let me say it again. It means to take an interest in someone, to come to their aid, to join with them in their struggle, and to supply the sufficient power to bear the load. That's how the Holy Spirit helps us. He strengthens us in our weakness as one who is intimately interested in our lives and invested in our lives. And that word helps is not a word that implies passivity for us. Okay? It's not like we just do nothing. That's not the idea. We must pursue the means that make for Christian faithfulness. But the secret is this, that the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the real and the ultimate power by which we persevere. He's the one who by His might makes us to continue walking in Christ. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit guarantees we make it through them all. He's the true source of our strength. He gives strength to our striving. That's the idea of that word helps. It's not like the whole, you know, let go, let God. I'm just not going to do anything. And I'm just going to trust myself to, you know, fate. That is not the idea here. The idea here is we, as the people of God, we do the things we know we're to do. And it's in doing those things by the leading of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit provides the strength and the power and the help oh, and the energy that we need to continue putting one foot in front of the other in the Christian walk with Christ. I'll give you an illustration. It's not perfect, but I think it'll help be helpful. Some of you know that we've got a weight room in our basement, right? And, and, and my dad bought it for our boys. It's probably been like 10 years or so now. And so when we got that weight room you know we would be down there the older boys and i and we would be lifting you know and working out and 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 everything but gabe was only like seven or eight at this time okay he was the little one instead of being the big one now right he was the little one and he would come down and you know how little brothers are they can be annoying sometimes but it's because they just they want to be apart right and so he came down and and he wanted to lift weights so i can remember distinctly putting him on the bench press right and putting on like a couple of plates, about 135 pounds, right? And then standing behind him, like I was going to spot him, right? Seven or eight now. And like lifting the bar off and like letting him push it, you know? Feel like he was lifting weights. And he was, you know, doing this, his face getting red and making weird faces and stuff and like squirming around on the bench. And he thought, he was pushing for all he had. He thought he was lifting that weight. He wasn't. No, he wasn't, right? I was lifting the weight for him. I was the one that was providing the power for him to lift. Beloved, listen. I want you to hear me. Gabe was engaged, right? But I was the one providing the power. We're the ones that are engaged. It's not like we just take a break 
from the, the difficulties of walking with Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit who provides the power, right? God's not going to lose any that He's chosen. He's not going to lose any of those whom Christ has saved. And this is assured because we, as we sojourn in this earth, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we walk and we wrestle and we strive and we seek and we pray. And as we do, He provides the might. He provides the power. He provides the strength. He applies the Scripture to our hearts. He nourishes our souls in the Word of God. He inflames our hearts in worship And when we pray and he strengthens us through fellowship and with our brothers and sisters and he gives us courage and strength and spiritual and emotional stability, he increases our trust, he upholds us, he makes us to stand. He helps us in our weakness and he guarantees that we're not going to fall away even amidst the sufferings of this present time because we have someone who is personally, relentlessly, intimately involved and invested in our lives to preserve us in the faith. Yeah, we're weak in ourselves, but he's strong. He's omnipotent. And there's no shame in confessing our weakness. Listen, Paul did it. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, Paul says these words. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Who does that? Who boasts of their weaknesses? When's the last time you got on Instagram and somebody's like, hey, just wanted to boast of, about how the fact that I, I couldn't, you know, I can't run a, a 12 second, 10, you know, 100 meters or whatever. When's the last time you had somebody brag about their weakness? Can you think of one? I can't play guitar. Look at me. Said no one. Who does that? Someone who knows that in and of themselves they are weak. And they desperately need the grace and the strength of Christ. He says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my, of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. How could Paul boast in his weaknesses? Because in the midst of his weakness, the words of God were proven in his experience. These words, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Recognizing our weakness, beloved, it just presses us to put our confidence where it belongs, in the Lord and in his grace and in his strength. In fact, I'll finish this section with these words. I just love these words from Robert Haldane here. He says this, he says, Christians have at present many infirmities. They are in themselves altogether weakness. But the Holy Spirit dwells in their hearts and is their strong consolation. Without Him, they could not bear their trials or perform what they are called to endure. But as He dwells in them, He gives them that aid of which they stand in need. Are we weak? And are troubles great? Here... The Almighty God comes to support us. Are we bowed down under the weight of our afflictions? Behold, He who is all-powerful bears them with us. Amen. Man, you know this experience. You've experienced it. You know when there's been times when you have been just undone, man. Like, I can't put another foot forward. And then all of a sudden, there's this strengthening. There is this, this energy and this power that is not of you. That keeps you pressing on, not grudgingly and not despairingly, but in the joy and, and just the confidence of Almighty God, right? That's the Spirit of God at work in you. That's Him doing for you, producing in you what you cannot do or produce. That is Him giving strength to your striving. He helps us in our weakness. But even more, Paul wants us to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf. This is cool. Look, look what he says here next in the second half of verse 26. It says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us <coughs> with groanings too deep for words. Here's what Paul is saying in essence. He's saying, brothers, sisters, one of the evidences that we are so weak is that we don't even know what to pray for like we ought to. We don't, we don't know what we should pray for. 
What does Paul mean by that? Does he mean that we never know what we should pray for? That we are completely devoid of any sense at all of what we should pray for? No, that's not what he's saying. Of course, you know, there are times and we know it's proper, for instance, to pray that God be glorified in the earth, right? We know that it's right to pray that his kingdom would grow, that Christ would be exalted, that the lost would be saved, that, that the, you know, for the provision of our daily needs for us and for others and to confess and repent of sin and ask God for forgiveness. It's proper and good to pray for God's leading and guidance. We know to pray according to God's, that, that God's moral will would be revealed to us in the word, right? To live according to that moral will that's revealed for us in the word. But, but when it comes right down to it, if we're honest, man, there are times quite often when we don't know how to pray. We just don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray for ourselves or for others. We don't know exactly what we should pray for. We don't specifically know what we should ask of God or how we should ask God to move and what would be in accordance with His sovereign will. I mean, we know that in the big sense, we know that God's purpose is the glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, right? We know that, that, that in the big picture, it is, it is our, you know, God's purpose is our spiritual good and the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters. But because of our limitations, we do not know the specifics of how God desires to accomplish his purpose. What to pray for escapes us. And it's even more pronounced when we're experiencing perhaps a greater degree of suffering or trial or hardship or tribulation than at another time. And in our weakness, we just don't know specifically what to ask of God, what specific requests to make. We just don't know because we have a limited perspective and an understanding. We just don't know. There are many ways that God could work in this particular situation, but I don't know how to pray in accordance with His will because I don't know what His will is. Paul knew that experience. If you've ever been there, don't despair. Paul knew this. I'll give you a couple of examples. First, in the text that I already mentioned, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember the context of that? Paul is praying that God would remove the thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. And we cannot know for certain, but there's this thorn in his flesh that has been given to him, this messenger from Satan that was given to him that he might not become conceited in light of the glorious revelations that he had received, right? And so he prays. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He prayed that God would remove that thorn. But you know what? It wasn't the will of God, was it? It wasn't God's will. That thorn remained a testimony to the sufficiency of God's grace. Then there's over in Philippians. Remember Philippians? Where Paul's at the beginning of Philippians describing this tug of war that's going on in his soul. He's not sure what he should choose. Whether he should choose death so that he could go and be with Christ that would be much better. Or choose life so that he might continue to preach and teach the word of God for the good of the church. Remember that? And so he says, verses 21 through 24, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I live for Christ. If I die, that's better. I find to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, let's just stop there a second. Obviously, Paul did not have the power to choose life or death, did he? When he's in jail, you don't have that power. He didn't have the power to choose life or death. The idea is... I'm unsure of God's will for me and how he ought to pray about this. We've been there, haven't we, beloved? I know you. I know some of you have. Some of you have been in a similar place to Paul in your personal life. And we've prayed together. And we didn't know how God was going to work, but God worked. We face situations in our corporate life as a a church like this. When we knew we needed to remain faithful to the word of God, but we had no idea what that was going to mean. Personally, I remember well. And Gretchen can describe it just, you know, a few weeks over a year ago, being on our knees in a hospital waiting room, 
praying earnestly for John, having prayed everything we knew to pray, having no idea whatever else to say to the Lord, not knowing how God would move, interceding with him and just coming to the end of ourselves, not even knowing what to pray according to God's will, right? There are many times we find ourselves right there. But Paul says, and praise God, it's true. He says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What a glorious truth that is. And I want to make sure that we really grasp the wonder and the blessing of the awesome nature of the statement that Paul is making here. Beloved, listen, I want you to hear me when I say this to you. While it is true that the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer, he does. He leads us to pray effectively and powerfully. He comes to our aid in prayer. He helps us in our weakness and he delivers us from coldness and deadness. He gives us passion. He gives us fervency in our prayers. He helps us to form our thoughts and our words. He gives clarity and accuracy, scriptural substance to our praying, prompting our prayers. We can all testify to that. That's true. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. It's not what's in view. It's not our spirit-directed prayer. What's in view here is the Holy Spirit's intercession on our behalf himself. He is praying for us. we got to let the text speak for itself and not try to impose upon it our own presuppositions or ideas. There are some, again, beloved brothers in Christ, guys I love, who get to this text and say, well, this idea of the Spirit groaning, like that can't be in the third member of the Trinity. And so what this really means is He gives words to our groanings. That is not what this text says. It's not what it says. The emphasis is upon the action of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit Himself. It's on what He does. He intercedes for us, for the people of God, for the sons and the daughters of God. And the picture that Paul is giving is this. When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is personally praying on our behalf. He is directly interceding with God the Father for us in our weakness. He knows what we need. He knows what is best. He knows what we cannot know. He pleads for us in ways that we are not able to do. I just want to draw out a couple of things here. And I want you to see this with me, beloved. First of all, I want you to see this. And I pray that for those of you who still do this by habit, you'll stop. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Do not call him it. If you call a person or a child it, that's a very defamatory thing, isn't it? Do not call him it. He's not an it. He's not some impersonal power or force. He's not some energy source to be exploited for selfish gain. Beloved, he's a person. He's the third member of the Godhead who has come to live in us as believers. He is intimately and constantly interceding for us. In fact, that word intercede is a present active verb. It means he is continually and continuously pleading and praying on our behalf with great affection and intensity for that which we most need, even if we're unaware. He's always interceding for us. That's the idea here. And again, he's not cold and mechanical. You know? The Holy Spirit is not detached from our situation. He, he, he's not, you know, he's not just standoffish at all. In fact, Paul, Paul, when he says he intercedes for us with groanings, he, he uses that word groanings deliberate. Groanings, beloved, are emotional and passionate, aren't they? Aren't they? Holy Spirit's not stoical and indifferent. He groans for us. He's fully engaged on our behalf is the idea. For our good and for God's glory. He is purposely involved in our lives. He's leading for us. He's leading us, yes. But he's also groaning for us. He's bearing the burden with us, for us. Some people get nervous with that kind of talk. They get a little, a little uncomfortable. Talking about the Holy Spirit in this way is having emotions. Right? But he does. He's the one whom Paul describes as being grieved by our sin in Ephesians 4, chapter 4 and verse 30, right? 
That's an emotion, isn't it? Paul is the one who describes him, the Holy Spirit, as being quenched when we fail to honor the Word of God and we, and we fail to live as we ought. Second Thessalonians chapter 5, 19, right? And here, he groans for us in prayer. Well, what's he groaning for? What's he groaning for? Well, let's keep it in context. Paul's already used the word groaning a couple times, right? How do you use it? Well, first of all, he's described the groaning of creation. The groaning of anticipate and anticipation of the revealing of the sons of God, right? Then he talks about how we ourselves groan inwardly. We're eagerly anticipating the redemption of our bodies, right? For that certain hope of glory. And now here we see the Holy Spirit groaning in anticipation, not out of weakness, but in omnipotent power. And he's groaning, he's eagerly, you know, anticipating with intensity and earnestness and deep emotion. He's anticipating our full enjoyment of all of the blessings of salvation, the redemption of our bodies, the glorification of us, and our seeing Christ face to face in a new heaven and a new earth. He is interceding for just that and everything necessary to make that a reality. He's doing it right now. He's interceding for us, pray, you know, perfectly praying for our strength and our endurance and for our spiritual good, for what we need. Inter- Interceding with divine certainty that God will complete the good work that he has begun. And those prayers, they are too deep for words. They're too deep for words. What does that mean? It means just that. They're too deep for words. The the content of his intercession is beyond our finding out. It's beyond our perfect understanding. Look, I want you to listen... Paul is not talking about speaking in tongues as some read into this text. That is just completely erroneous. It's not even close to being exegesis. It's straight up eisegesis. It's I want that to be in there, so I'm going to read it into that text. It's not not what it's talking about at all. Here the word alaletos literally means inexpressible, unspeakable, unutterable. What Paul is describing here is a mystery. It is a mystery of intertrinitarian communication on our behalf. How does that work? You don't need to know. Wait, what? Yeah, you don't need to know. No, well, I deserve to know everything. <laughs> Only in your mind. No, you don't. All right? John MacArthur captured it perfectly when he said, look, as Paul says explicitly, <clears throat> the groans are not even audible. And are inexpressible in words, yet those groans carry profound content. Namely, divine appeals for the spiritual welfare of each believer. In a way infinitely beyond our understanding, these groanings represent what might be called inner Trinitarian communication, divine articulations by the Holy Spirit to the Father. I want you to think about what this means, right? This is amazing. In other words, every day, All over the world, all the time, from the hearts of God's people, the Holy Spirit groans on behalf of the children of God, praying in words that cannot be expressed, passionately, lovingly, and faithfully interceding for our spiritual welfare, knowing intimately our condition and exactly what we need. That is nothing short of astonishing. And it ought to fill us with confidence and with hope that no matter the situation in which we find ourselves, His prayers, His groaning on our behalf, those prayers are always answered. They're always answered because they are in accordance, perfect accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit is the only perfect intercessor on earth. Notice I said on earth. Look at it. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts, that's God, the Father, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, 
Paul's just saying this, look, the God that searches the hearts of men, the God who knows what makes you tick, the God who knows everything about you, the God who knows your thoughts and your desires and your longing, knows everything that you are, who searches you and knows your spiritual condition better than you, who knows what you're facing, who knows what you need in order to knit your heart more to Christ, the God who knows every single thing about you, listen, as well as he knows us, he knows the mind of the Spirit of God. And why? Because the Godhead is one. That's why. Father, Son, and Spirit, always of one accord, always of one purpose, always of one heart. God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit always intercedes according to the Word of God. He's never a little off in His prayers. He's never just kind of hitting around it, but not quite making the target, right? Every prayer he prays is perfectly in line with the Father, in perfect agreement, and perfectly on point, perfectly in alignment with the divine will, even when ours might be light years off. And because his prayers are, they are always answered perfectly. And so we're guaranteed that we're going to have all that we truly need to endure in our lives with Christ because the Holy Spirit's going to pray Holy Spirit prays for those things and the Father in heaven delights to answer in the affirmative because he knows his mind and they're of one heart, one mind, one purpose. Man, that's a great comfort to me. I hope it is to you. You know, that's not a reason not to pray. That's not like, okay, well, if that's the case, you don't need to pray. No, that's, no, no. Let me make it clear. We must pray. We're commanded to pray. It's indispensably essential to our life in Christ. Again, the words from Jude that I read at the beginning of the service. Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep praying. But you know what? It is a great comfort to know that even when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, we have a perfect intercessor who prays for us exactly what we need. I mean, you know what a blessing it is, right? You know what a blessing it is, to, an encouragement, what a comfort to know that there are other people praying for you, right? Isn't that great? I mean, when you know there are other people lifting you up in prayer, pleading and interceding on your behalf, you can sense that, right? I mean, there are times when, when you know people are praying for you. You just have this sense, man, somebody is praying for me, and I'm glad they are. As great as that is, and I don't want to minimize that at all, we need to be praying for one another more and more, but as great as that is, beloved, no one has ever prayed for you like the Holy Spirit does. No one's ever prayed as powerfully, as passionately, as intimately, as wisely or perfectly with a better knowledge of what you truly need than he does. He is the perfect intercessor. I just want to close this morning with these thoughts. Beloved, my prayer is that after looking at this text this morning, we're going we're gonna to stand amazed at how perfectly and graciously and lovingly God has provided for the assurance of our salvation. For the guarantee that we will persevere till the end for our preservation as his children, despite our weakness. Now, I want you to think about it. He has given to us Christ, right? Who has accomplished our redemption without our help, right? Because we couldn't give him any. He has accomplished our salvation. He saved us. He's made us his own. And he's the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, right? As Paul says in verse 34 of this very chapter, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. So first we've got this Savior, right? Who has saved us who is now our intercessor in heaven and who will allow no accusation or condemnation against those whom he has justified. And he prays for us even now as he prayed for Peter that our faith may not fail. That's awesome. But not only that, God has given to us the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. If it were up to us, our faith would never endure 
till the end, but he upholds us and he makes us to stand and he makes certain that we won't fall away and that we will not fall from grace even amid the sufferings of this present time. He is personally and intimately and relentlessly involved and invested in our lives to preserve us in the faith, right? But even more, in him we have an intercessor, the perfect intercessor on this earth, one who is with us. One who dwells in us. One who perfectly intercedes for us in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, but we are exceedingly grateful for. Who prays for all of us, that for everything that we need to endure and to persevere right now until the fullness of our salvation is completed and these bodies of flesh are redeemed and transformed and glorified and we are gathered to God with all the saints of every age in the glory of a new heaven and a new earth. Our faith becomes sight and we dwell with the Lord forever. We've got two intercessors. One in heaven. One on earth. If Christ is praying for us. If the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Beloved, what more confidence could we possibly seek than in the Spirit of God and in the Son of God that our salvation, accomplished by Christ and applied by the Spirit, is eternally and evermore secure. How blessed are we If we're Christ, our faith can't finally fail. We can't fall from grace. We can't be cast off. We won't suffer eternal loss in the end. It can't happen. Because the God who chose us and called us and saved us and who is sanctifying us, He will preserve us to the end because His work of salvation for His people is all-encompassing and it's guaranteed by His faithful provision for our souls. Especially seen here in the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness and who intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Beloved, God is faithful. That's why Paul can say these words, and I'll close with them, that we'll look at beginning next week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers, many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified. And those whom he justified, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know the answer to that. No one. Nothing. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful. I am thankful personally. Father, for these words. For the gracious instruction and reminder that they are to us, to me, to to your people in this room, that our salvation is secure not because of us, but because of you and your gracious supply for our every need, a savior and intercessor in heaven and an intercessor on earth in us. God, I praise you. I praise you for fashioning our salvation in such a way as you receive all of the glory and all of the praise Because you are the one who provides everything and everyone necessary. And Lord, we are incredibly thankful for the way that you have blessed us. Far exceeding the scope and the depth of the condemnation that we deserve. I pray, Lord God, now that as we think about this text right now, those of us who are in Christ... Lord, we'd be moved to worship. We'd be moved to thanksgiving and praise. We would be moved to adoration and wonder and awe. We would just, we would just declare to you, Lord, you, you are above all others. There is no one like you. I pray that you would free 
our tongues and free our hearts to worship you and praise you and adore you unashamedly as we ought. God, I pray for those that are here in this room that cannot say that what I've been preaching is true of them. They've never sensed or known the booing and the strengthening of the Spirit of God in their lives in the midst of suffering or hardship or trial because they don't, they just simply don't know Christ. They don't know Christ as Redeemer and Savior and Lord. They don't know Him as the one who took to Himself human flesh and lived a life of perfect obedience and then at the end of His life went to a cross willingly and bore upon His own soul the debt and the guilt of our sins and then paid in full the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion against God and who died and was buried and rose the third day in order that He might be proclaimed the Son of God by the Holy Spirit with power. That they know Christ as something less as something that is a figment of man's imagination, but not the Christ who saves. And they've never seen themselves as a sinner in desperate need. I pray you'd open their eyes to the reality of their condition this day. I pray, Lord God, that you would humble them before you. I pray that they would see that in their sinful condition, they are children of wrath. They are under the wrath of God and they need rescued. And I pray that you would convince them that the only rescue is Christ. Father, please, please move powerfully, I pray, in our midst right now to seal to our souls the truth of this word. I pray it in Jesus' holy and blessed name. Amen.